If I, uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Matt. I serve as the church planting resident here. I want to invite you to open up in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to get right into it this morning. John chapter 5. We're going to be picking up specifically uh, in verse 19 this morning. Let me pray for us as we uh, dive into God's word here and see what he has for us. Father, we are delighted that we get to hear from you once again this morning, that we get to gather as your body and hear from you, our head. Lord, please open our hearts to what it is you want to share with us. Cause us to receive uh, whatever encouragement, whatever conviction, whatever leading it is you have. Lord, we come to you with open hands. We are dependent completely upon what you have for us. So teach us, glorify yourself in us and through us, and cause us to be the people that you desire us to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, uh, tomorrow morning, uh, I get uh, the wonderful and distinct privilege of showing up at 8 a.m. for jury duty. Who here has had jury duty before? Many of the people? I'm curious, raise your hand if you've actually had to stick around for like an actual trial. Okay, so I got one, two, three, okay, I hope I'm not you people tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, tomorrow I, I have to show up. If you can't tell, I'm not super thrilled about it. I think I'm going to pull the like my wife's do with a baby next week card. And, and I'm hoping that they, uh, they, they let me off the hook. But, but with all that, you know, there, there's something meaningful uh, about being a part uh, of something like that, playing your, your civic duty. If, if we want to think of it in terms of, of 1 Peter, kind of honoring the emperor, recognizing the authorities that the Lord has established, and being able to uh, play the part where you're hearing evidence presented and, and you're making a verdict based on the evidence that you're hearing. And this is, this is kind of just one part of kind of the way that we live our life. Like this is how we live. We take evidence in and we make judgments and we make decisions based on those things. And as we come to scripture this morning, I just want us to, to consider what Jesus has to say and draw a verdict on the person of Jesus. As we enter into the latter part of John chapter five, he's going to be presenting us with evidence for the claims that he had previously made uh, in last week's section. And I want us to ask that if these claims he is making are true, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for my life? Not, not just in the long term, not eternally, but even presently. How does that inform the decisions that I am supposed to be making? As we go through the Gospel of John, we're, we're well on our way into it here. One of the things that, that you'll see comes up is, as one Bible scholar put it, this, this theme of, uh, of trial, this trial motif, where we see that there's parts in John's Gospel where Jesus appears to be put on trial for the claims that he is making, and he is forced to defend himself in one way or the other. And in today's text, we're actually picking up in the second part uh, of a conversation that Jesus engaged in in the earlier part of chapter 5. Prior to today's text, some of you might remember that he was once again in Jerusalem uh, for one of the pilgrimage feasts that Jewish people were required to go to Jerusalem for. And what he did while he was there is he healed this disabled man. And, And what's funny is there's this amazing miracle that takes place And yet the religious leaders who are there, they overlook the miracle for the fact that he healed this man 
on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Now, I want to clarify something for us. If you've uh, been, been involved with the, the podcast that we've been doing, uh, I've already talked about this, so this will be reiterated for you. But if you haven't, then I want to clarify this language that John uses. He usually uses this language of the Jews. And sometimes when we read this, it's easy for us to think that he is broadly categorizing people. But the reality is, is that word in Greek is actually very specific. And there's actually a lot of debate around what it means. And clearly, it doesn't mean all Jews, because then we would be dealing with Jesus and his disciples as well. What's going on whenever John uses this word, the Jews, is I want you to think of it as a technical term. It's a technical term that refers most likely to the Judean leaders of kind of the, uh, you might say, the, the Jewish aristocracy that existed in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and he ends up in this conflict, that's why this is going on. Now, they accused Jesus of violating the law when he had healed this man on the Sabbath. But the reality is, is Jesus did not violate anything in the Old Testament text. What they're accusing him of is violating their traditional understanding of how the text is to be lived out. Because what does the Old Testament say? It says, uh, you are not to work on the Sabbath. Now, the question is, what is work? What does work even look like? And I would venture to say that that is actually vague intentionally, because work for some of us might look a little bit different than work for others of us. However, in the first century, what the kind of rabbinic tradition was developing is they had their conceptions and interpretations of what work looked like, and they believed Jesus was violating that. And in response to them, here's what Jesus says. Look in your Bibles at verse 17. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, this started a huge firestorm for them in this conversation. It was normal for Jewish people in the first century and even today to refer to God as the Father or as our Father. But what does Jesus say? My Father is working. He was claiming this unique relationship to him. And in the same way that the Jewish community believed that God could both uphold the universe at all times and not violate the Sabbath, now Jesus was claiming this same divine prerogative. He was claiming this authoritative role that as some of the, uh, some of the other gospels put it, he was claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And as a result of that, the religious leaders didn't just want to discourage him, they wanted to kill him is what it says in verse 18. And I want us to think about if we were Jesus, how might we respond to that? I haven't had many people seeking my life, right? But what, how might you respond to that? Would you run away? Would you seek legal protection? Would you seek police protection? What, what would you do if somebody is coming at you with that amount of hostility? When we look at how Jesus responds here, what we see is he doesn't run away but he actually doubles down on his claim and he turns the tables back on them. He's gonna tell them that he does indeed have authority and he's gonna explain to us how that authority is lived out and how they are wrong to be rejecting it. So let's jump right in here. Let's look at verses 19 through 21 and then we'll jump to 30 and we'll consider what Jesus' authority looks like. And when I say this, what I mean is how is this authority expressed specifically with regard to his relationship to God the Father? Look what he says here, start in verse 19 with me. 
So Jesus says to them, here's his response to them wanting to kill him. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Look at verse 30. He reiter- he reiterates, excuse me. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and the judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this is kind of mind bending language that Jesus uses, isn't it? The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. This is typical John-esque language where he talks in circles. It is my favorite, okay? But there's a reality here where, where we're getting this insight into this unique relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. And the way that I would describe it is this kind of divine mirroring, that in the same way a son might watch his dad doing something and then copy it, the son, Jesus, is watching God the Father do whatever work he is doing in the world, and he is perfectly living it out. And in this, Jesus makes this claim that the way that he operates with regard to the Father is in this kind of functionally subordinate way, in this posture of submission. Now, when you hear that, that might make you a little uncomfortable, especially if we have a very high and exalted view of Jesus. If we elevate or if we we tend to recognize his divinity over his humanity, this idea that Jesus is submitted to the Father might be a little strange. But let me suggest this, that submission and service does not inherently need to degrade dignity or authority or equality, value. It certainly doesn't remove his nature And so Jesus can be both by nature God and he can operate with regard to the Father in a role of submission. So we see in the text that because of how Jesus relates to the Father, that everything he does is consistent with the Father, that everything he does is with God the Father's divine approval. He is always working for the good of the world in the sense that he's always carrying forward God's redemptive purposes in the world. Now think about how that would have been received by these religious leaders who are in conflict with Jesus. They accused him of doing something wrong, right? They accused him of violating their traditional understanding of the Sabbath right? And think about how he responds to them, right? They're offended that he puts himself at the level of the father. And what he says is, you accuse me of doing wrong when in fact I can do no wrong. The only thing I can do is what I'm watching the father do. So if you're offended by what I'm saying, then you're offended at the father's approval, not just at my work, It's a very interesting response. He's really, really good in these confounding moments where they challenge him. I also want to just speak to this topic of authority too, because Jesus is going to talk a ton about the authority that he holds. And I would venture to say that that our cultural moment is kind of allergic 
we might say, to this idea of authority, isn't it? Many of us don't like this idea of having someone looming over us. And some of us might have real reasons for why we don't like authority. Maybe you've seen authority abused. Maybe you've seen it just misused and things maybe went poorly. But, but the truth of the matter is this, that the solution to bad authority is not the absence of leadership. Okay, the, the, the reality is that the solution to bad authority is good and godly authority. And for those of us who have uh, maybe had a boss at work or something like that, that, that was a solid leader, that did exercise his authority well, then we have to recognize that, that that can be a positive experience. And the case to be made as we're reading about Jesus and the authority that he holds here is that under his authority, it is in fact the best experience. Because the default posture we learn from these verses of Jesus' leadership style is that of serving you. See, Jesus leads out of submitting and serving. In other words, he is in this so that you will flourish at the end of the day. Now, that doesn't mean everything that you do, he approves of. This isn't like his relationship to the father, right? He's still the boss here. He is still in charge, but he is the boss who knows us better than we know ourselves, who, who knows what we need better than we know what we need, and so that we trust him. But we don't only learn about how Jesus' authority is then played out. We now learn what he is authorized by the Father to do. Take a look at verses 22 through 29 with me. 22 through 29. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given his authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pause there. So we've talked about how Jesus demonstrates his authority, but now what does he in fact have authority over? We learn he has authority to judge and he has authority to give life. So instead of the father judging, and I'm not talking in a judgmental sense, we're talking in the sense of rendering appropriate judgment to what one deserves, right? Instead of the father rendering that judgment, Jesus has this privilege. And if you look at verse 27, the reason he has this privilege is because he is the son of man. Now, you might read that and say, what, what the heck does that mean? right? Jesus being the son of man. Why is that the validation that he is able to execute judgment? Let me pull this text up in front of us from Daniel chapter seven. The son of man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. If you read some of the other gospels, he will often talk about himself 
in the third person as the son of man. And the son of man language goes back to Daniel chapter seven in verse 13. And this is written 500 plus years prior to Jesus. It's a prophetic text, I would argue about him. And here's what it says, starting in verse 13 of Daniel seven. I saw, Daniel's talking about this, in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in this text, we see the ancient of days, God, and presented to him is one who is like a human. And yet there's something strange in this in that this human is given authority over the rest of the world. And it talks about him riding on the clouds. Now, in the ancient world, riding on the clouds was a a, a deity-type language. It was actually what the Canaanites used with regard to their God. And so Daniel borrows it and applies it to their God and says, no, 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 it's our God who is riding on the clouds. He is the one who is the true God. And yet here, it's being applied to Jesus. And so we see that in Daniel 7, there's one who is like a human, and yet one who is God, who is given, being given rule over the entire world. And Jesus says, the Father has given me authority because I am that one, and I have the ability to give life to the dead. This is a very big deal that he says this. It really stirs up the animosity with the leaders here. Because in the Hebrew Bible, in in the Old Testament, it was only God who was given the power, or has the power, we'll say, to give life to the dead. And now Jesus is being given that power. It is very clear that Jesus is speaking to his divinity here. Because what do the religious leaders do? Do they want to discourage him? No, what do they want to do to him? They want to kill him, right? To claim to be the Messiah is not a capital offense. To claim to be God with them is. See, they pick up on what he is trying to say here. Now, there's two things that are particularly interesting I want us to observe here in the text. The first is that Jesus says, a time has arrived. He says, right, in in verse 25, an hour's coming and is now here. He uses this throughout John. That a time has arrived where the dead will hear him And the dead that heed what he is saying, they will experience life. Now, if we think about what he means by that, it's very interesting what he implies. It's very similar to Matthew 8, where he refers to people who by all intensive purposes, we look at them as living. He refers to them as dead people. It's a very extreme claim. And in this, he's implying this truth, that death is actually the default We are all in fact walking dead and apart from God's intervention, there is no life to be had. But Jesus then takes it a step further and he says, do not marvel at this in verse 28. Do not be shocked that I'm talking about the fact that one day I will give life to the dead because one day God will raise everyone. See, the Jewish community didn't all agree on this, but there was at least a general consensus that one day there would be a general resurrection at the end of the age, and God would raise people either to eternal death or to eternal life. And so in this, I want us to to just grasp the reality that we might have categories that broadly understand life and death. But what Jesus is getting at is that there is a form 
of truer death than we know. And there is also a greater life than we could fathom. Let's pause there for a second. I don't think that we, in the speed of our, of our cultural moment, of our lives, often give enough time to reflecting on these ideas of life and death. We live in a pretty unique time where, where many of us are regularly shielded from this idea of death. A lot of that is the result of, of medical advancement, which is an amazing thing, right? But the result is that we're often shielded from it. But if we ask our grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, people 100, 200 years ago, death was much more common and right more out front for them. And the reality is, is in Jesus' day and age, death is very apparent. And the truth of the matter for us is that despite all of our medical advancement, the reality is that death is still a trajectory for us apart from God's intervention. There's going to come a time where our heart stops beating. There's going to come a time where our brain shuts down. There's going to come a time where our bodies just start to decay and they're in the floor and they go into the, the dirt and we're eaten, right? You didn't know it was going to be such a positive sermon this morning, did you? But, but that's the reality. And all that's left of us is going to be people's memories of us, the legacy maybe that we left behind. And sometimes we use these platitudes, right? Like death is just a part of life, right? We use those to comfort ourselves. But I think that those comforting things that we say are betrayed by how we actually feel when someone close to us dies. The truth of the matter is, is that we know that death sucks, that it is tragic, that it is a terrifying thing to think about. And we know that there is something wrong with it. There's a reason why when we talk to children about death, we're very cautious about how we communicate it because we know it is jarring. And the Bible 100% affirms this. The Bible speaks to this. It is clear that this is not what God wants for us. Jesus would not be here if that was what God wanted for us. On the other hand, Jesus here talks a lot about life, right? And his ability to give it to us. You might say, well, I'm already living. And I think Jesus knows that. I think he's communicating something different, right? He's applying or assuming that there's more to this life that, that's to be had. And we all know that. We know that there's more for us. That's the reason why when we don't achieve, oftentimes we're regretful because we know there's more to live into. That's why when other people don't live up to our expectations, we're often disappointed, especially if you're a parent, right? Because you want more for your child. That's the reason why we're outraged at, at matters of injustice in our communities, because we know that there's more life to be had for the communities that we live in, right? That sense of discontent that we feel at times, this desire to strive, is not always bad. Sometimes it is a sign. It is a, this thing that God is doing in us that we're supposed to be stepping into more of who God made us to be. So the question is here, what does it mean to live according to Jesus? What does it mean to live? 
What does it mean to live the dream, right? To, to live it up, right? If we came up with our own list, we could, we could fill tons of these, these PowerPoint slides, right? And not all of those are bad things, but here's what Jesus talks about as life. Jesus says that living is the supernatural ability to exist now in light of what will come to completion in eternity. Let me say that again. Life, according to Jesus, is the supernatural ability to exist now in light of what will come to completion in eternity. You see, following Jesus is not just about life then. It is an informed, eternal life now that is informed by the then, right? It's this abundant life. Jesus desires to give us life now that one day we will see in complete fulfillment. And what we see is that living, according to Jesus, is not self-centered, It is thoroughly and 100% God-centered, and it is dependent on the Son. And here's the benefit of that when we live into that. Number one, we find that we were who we were created to be. And it's a benefit for those around us because in God's supernatural work, we begin to express what the Apostle Paul calls fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace, patience, all of these then these are exactly the things that our families need, that our coworkers need, that our friends need, that our communities and our neighbors need. So there is this benefit in coming under God's design for life in Jesus. I also want you to notice with me what happens in verse 23. Look down at your Bibles. And in the second part of verse 23, Jesus makes a jarring claim with regard to this idea of life and relationship with God. He says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Jesus makes it really clear that there is no way to appropriately revere and honor God unless we honor the son. That is to say, we cannot claim to love God. We cannot claim to truly pursue God and at the same time reject Jesus over here. I'm gonna be kind of blunt about it and just say it like this. Any spirituality that rejects the son is counterfeit spirituality and it cannot satisfy that part that God made of us that desires to be connected to our maker. And our righteous standing and our unrighteous standing before our creator stands not on us, but as Jesus says, on how we accept or deny the son. The way we relate to God the father is connected to how we relate to God the Son. To rest upon Jesus is to find rest with the Father. To to deny Jesus is to inherit judgment from the Father. Jesus is very extreme in his language with these religious leaders here. And as in the same way, someone might hear me and say, well, Matt, that's just your opinion, right? That's your interpretation of the text and not put a lot of weight into what I'm saying. What's interesting here, what's funny, is that Jesus seems to actually understand that his opponents are not going to put much stock in what he says on his own volition either. They they see him claiming these things, but obviously they're gonna question what value does this guy from Nazareth, his opinion, hold? And so instead of backing down, once again, Jesus turns it up a notch. And I think what we see here is the, the final thing I want us to wrestle with is that we, like they, must issue a verdict on whether Jesus is who he claims to be. Let's finish some of the last portion of this text, verses 30 through 38. Jesus reiterates what we heard earlier. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, being John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. These are fighting words, aren't they? Jesus is not only making claims, but now he is forced to defend them. And as I was reading that, one of the things I hope that that you saw is is this repetition, the reiteration of this, this phrase testimony, this phrase witness. I actually count, I think it's eight times that those words are used. In in Greek, they actually come from the same word. And so what would be happening if you're hearing John's gospel read in Greek is you would see Jesus standing there before the religious leaders and they're accusing him and he's defending himself, but you realize by the amount of time he's talking about this witness and testimony that he is not alone that all of these things are coming out of the woodwork to support his claims, to defend him. Jesus recognizes that his claim alone will not hold much weight for them. In fact, according to the Hebrew Bible, especially in a court of law, if you're gonna make a claim, an official claim, a legal claim, then you need two to three witnesses. This was built into Israel's law so that nobody could make false accusations or, or false claims about themselves or about other people. And so what does Jesus do? In perfect Jewish mindset, depending on how you break this text up, Jesus gives at least three, if not five, witnesses to the claims that he is making about his authority, his ability to give life, and his deity here. We're going to go through quickly through the witnesses he presents to them. The first one here is John the Baptist, right? He says John was a witness. He was this temporary and yet valuable figure. In fact, he is Jesus' half-cousin here, right? And he was the precursor to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Jesus calls him a, a, a burning and a shining lamp. One commentator talks about him being the lamp who testified to the light of the world. Then Jesus goes on to talk about the miracles and the works as a witness to to the claims that he is making. If you've read your Old Testament, then you should be familiar with this, that one of the things that God does when he's trying to validate one of his leaders is he supernaturally empowers them to affirm their claims with certain miracles, with certain works, as Jesus would put it. One really clear example of this is Moses. Right? When Moses came to Pharaoh, how did God validate his claims? By also sending 10 plagues upon Egypt. And so Jesus says, my supernatural knowledge, my turning water to wine, my ability to heal the synagogue leader's son, these are all demonstrations that I am who I claim to be. Then he says, the father affirms me. Now, this is kind of a vague text. What what does he mean by the father? Does he mean God's word? Does he mean the father's affirmation at his baptism? When he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, the text isn't clear. But what is clear is that Jesus says, 
that these opponents of his do not have God's word within them. They have not, uh, you might say, captured it in their heart. They have not digested what the scriptures say. And the evidence for that is that they have rejected the father's messenger. But then Jesus says this, and this is where it starts to get very real for these guys. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We need to understand how offensive that is for these guys to hear. Okay, they have spent most of their lives pouring over the scriptures. They, they, will, uh, they read their, their Bibles, their Old Testament at that time. They read their Old Testament more times than we probably ever will in our life by the time that they were probably 12 or 13 years old. Okay, they have been seeking to interpret this text. They have been seeking to embody the scriptures with everything that they are. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, you missed it. You have been so engrossed in the written word of God that you have missed its ability to serve as a signpost to the living word of God. He wants them to understand that it wasn't the text itself that would give them life, but it was the God of the text and the God of the text was the one who was speaking to them. Do you see the irony of what's going on here? I think it's worth us stopping for a moment to to think about that because this confronts us in a really unique way. If you know me personally, then you know that uh, I, I am a Bible nerd of Bible nerds, right? This is what I spend my time doing, not just you know, vocationally, but just for fun. I spent a significant portion of my life reading through this text and it is good for us and it is appropriate for us that we spend time in God's word. It is a discipline that should cultivate intimacy with the Lord. But as people of God's word, what Jesus says should startle us. Because what he says is that we can be a people who religiously read God's word and we can still miss God. We can be a people who turn over every rock of scripture and we can miss the rock of our salvation. And so let me, let me just encourage you this morning. Can I, can I do that? To, that as you hear God's word, as you're hearing us go through it, as you're pondering it, what it means, what's going on in the text, I, I would like you, I'd, I want to encourage you to respond by turning to God and not to a set of propositions from the text. Can I, can I challenge you as we look at this, as we think about what Jesus says, this mind-bending relationship between him and the Father, his ability to give life and raise the dead, the authority that he holds, and all of this, can I, can I challenge you to hear those things and first be led to worship before you are led to theological debate? Now, there is time for theological debate. I will have that with you. It would be my pleasure to buy you coffee and have that. But what Jesus says here is that knowledge of God's word without God is still death. He says that if we have God's word, but do not have God, then we are still without life. Just hear what he says as he continues to kind of lay into them. He says, I do not receive glory from people, starting in verse 41. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, what Jesus recognizes in these guys is they, they kind of view themselves as kind of a clique, right? They are, they're kind of spurred on by one another and their ability to confront Jesus. They are affirmed, they're kind of an echo chamber, you might say, of their interpretations of the text and their disaffirmation of the Lord here. But Jesus says, I'm not like you. I do not need man's affirmation. And the irony here is that they would question the validity of Jesus' word when in fact he's authorized by the Father. But they'll take others at their word. But Jesus has been making the case that it is not his word alone that they need to hear. They don't need to take Jesus at his word alone because he has given them five witnesses that will also corroborate his word. And so he gives us the last one. And this is kind of the final kind of punch to the religious leaders. Do not think, verse 45, that I'll accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, and on on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Mic drop, right? What a way to end that conversation. So to these men, experts in the Bible, having read Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books attributed to Moses over and over and over, here's what he says, I don't even have to accuse you. The guy that you put all of your stock in Moses, he's in my corner, right? The point he makes is that Moses, yes, wrote these books with immediate value and with immediate contextual uh, content within it. But Moses, in in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible, sets in place a narrative that is only satisfied in Jesus. See, if you, he says, if you trust him so much and you won't listen to him, then why would you listen to me when I come to you at all? I want us to come back to this idea of Jesus appearing to be on trial with these leaders, this trial motif, right? Throughout John's gospel, we're gonna see this over and over that Jesus is on trial to defend his claims, to defend his identity, to defend his ministry. But here's what's funny about this. Here's how this plays out, this reversal. By rejecting Jesus, And these witnesses that he has put forth, right? John the Baptist, Jesus works in miracles, the father, God's word, and finally Moses himself. It's these guys who demonstrate that they're guilty. You see, they're trying to put the guilt on Jesus and his response makes it clear that it is the world who is being put on trial. The conversation ends and the tables have been turned. Now, as we close this morning, I think it's easy to look at this dialogue that exists between these guys and, and, to, and to be unnecessarily harsh with these religious leaders. I, I think it's easy for us to point fingers at them and say, how did you miss Jesus? How could you miss God when he's standing right in front of you? Right, these guys who believed that they were part of God's story, how could they miss the hero of God's story when he showed up But lest we be too quick to condemn them, I think that although it might look different, we run the same risk that they did. See, the issue that they had is that they were offended by what he said. 
when in fact they should have known better. There were all of these signposts, all of these witnesses, as he puts it, that that Jesus named that were all around them in their life, and yet they still were too blind to see. They were blinded by their expectations. They were blinded by their religious traditions. Now, don't hear me knocking all tradition, but in this context, it got in the way. And friends, I don't want us to miss hearing and heeding the word of Jesus this morning. So I'm gonna just be really blunt with us. I'm just gonna ask you a really upfront question. What expectations, what excuses, and what barriers might you be letting get in the way of you simply just coming to Jesus and sitting under his authority? I say this to those who are followers of Jesus. I say this to those who are not yet followers of Jesus, right? If you're not a Christ follower, you need the Lord. If you are a Christ follower, you still need the Lord, right? And so what expectations, excuses, and barriers are getting in the way of you wholeheartedly running after Jesus, of you wholeheartedly sitting at his feet and saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Do you have social barriers in your life? Maybe it's, what will people think of me? How will this impact my relationship if I decide to honor Jesus? Maybe there's a logistical barrier for you. How might this impact my time or kind of my my life trajectory? What will this mean for me? Maybe there's a, a religious barrier there. This is sometimes the most difficult. This is actually what we're seeing happen in the text, right? What, what religious convictions, maybe preferences or, or beliefs might need to be laid down? And I say this to those who are traditionally religious and maybe uh, more secularly religious. We're all very religious people, right? We all have beliefs that inform the way we live. So might following Jesus cause us to have to lay those beliefs aside, to take up a new worldview? Maybe there's lifestyle barriers that you have. How might this change the way that I actually need to live? How might this change the decisions that I have to make? I want us to think about that and take that really, really seriously. And I want you to hear this morning that in the complexity of that, Jesus' heart is still for you like it was for them. Hear what he says when he's laying out these witnesses right after John the Baptist He says, I I don't need glory from man, but I say these things, why? So that you may be saved. Even to these stubborn opponents, Jesus' heart is the same as it is for us, that we might be saved, that we might experience his love. God wants to save your life and Jesus is the means by which he does that. So whatever your personal story What Jesus is communicating here as he's confronting these guys is that it's actually part of a bigger story that is going on. The scriptures are very clear that there's a story going on where life and death are on the line. It is the story where God made us for a purpose and for flourishing and for good and for relationships with one another and ultimately with him. And it's in us choosing to go our way instead of his. It's in our rebellion against him that we have established this trajectory of certain death for ourselves. And we experience that. I think we know that as we talked about earlier, that death is a reality, that our world is broken, that there is more than what we see now, that our world is full of potential and without God's intervening, we will never reach it. And what Christ is establishing in this conversation today is that he is God's rescue plan. 
he is the climax of that story that we are a part of, that he's God incarnate who has looked upon us in our weakness and says, I love them, right? He's, he's the one who, who, who gives us life and he gives us life by laying down his own. And as he rises from death, we see that death is not the king. We see that we are not the king, but Jesus is king and he has authority over life. As always, we're invited to turn from our sin and to entrust ourselves to King Jesus. And for those of us who do, the scriptures are clear that we are fully pardoned of our wrongdoing now and forever, and we are given a life that is transformed, that begins now. You see, the Christian life, the life of following Jesus is not about escaping this world. It's about being a a, a spirit-empowered light in the world as we wait for Jesus to come and bring heaven to earth. That's why he prays, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. So today, once again, we're gonna come to the communion table. And I want us to come here this morning remembering Jesus' perfect life given for us and his conquering of the grave. No matter who you are, if you've turned from your sin, if you've turned to Jesus, you're invited to this table. And as we go back to seats, our seats in worship, I want us to resolve ourselves to sitting under Jesus as Lord to recognize this amazing authority that he has. And if you have things in your life that just are these weights to you, that you can't seem to let go of, that you think are actually holding you back from the fullness that Jesus has for you, I'm gonna hang out up here this morning. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to pray with you. I'm sure there's people in the pews that would love to chat more about that and would love to pray for you. But the good news this morning is this, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he is Lord, period. And so my question for us, as we think about his conversation with these leaders this morning and the claims that he makes, is have we practically recognized him as Lord of the story that we're in today? I want us to think about that. I want us to stew on that. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll come to the communion table and we'll worship. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are Lord of all. And yet, God, we so often push back on that authority in our rebellion, in our weakness. For some reason, Lord, we we look at you who are omniscient and think we know better. And we let our own desires trump your desire for us, your good and perfect and faithful heart for us. Lord, cause us to repent of that. Please forgive us. Lord, we wanna be a light for you. We wanna be those people who are not dead men walking, but we wanna be people who are empowered by your life as we await your eternity. And we want that life to overflow, to be salt and light to those around us that we meet. And so God, would you open up opportunities for that to happen? Lord, would you empower us and give us boldness by your spirit that we might proclaim that you are in charge, that you are Messiah. Lord, as we read our scriptures, help us to read them in light of what you have done. Make us the people that you want us to be. 
Help us to rejoice in that work and not push back on it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.